Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Three of the most modern long-range reconnaissance aircraft in the world, P-2 B-7 Neptunes, arrive at Townsville RAAF base on their delivery flight from Burbank, California. They're the first three of 12 bought by the Air Force at a cost of more than 10 million pounds. Regarded as the world's most effective anti-submarine aircraft, the Neptunes are equipped with the most advanced submarine detection and tracking equipment. These planes, which will replace obsolete Lincolns, are equipped for rocket attack, torpedo attack, mine laying and photographic reconnaissance. A strong security guard is placed over the aircraft as soon as they land. We've done a lot of work inside the aeroplane. Um, we've dug out more Mariba dirt, which is now underneath the aeroplane, than there is left in Mariba. Uh, we found mud wasp nests um, of, of, of considerable size, and if we went looking up there now, we'd probably find some that we've missed. The soundtrack there from a 1962 British Pathé newsreel entitled Neptunes for the RAAF Arrive from America. And after that you heard the voice of QAM volunteer and Neptune restoration team member Peter Harrington. And you'll hear more from Peter in a moment. Hello and welcome to Mac One the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. I'm Gary Hills, a QAM volunteer, and I'll be your host for this, the first of a two-part feature about the people and the stories and the restoration of our Lockheed Neptune, number 277. The Neptune was an RAAF maritime surveillance, anti-submarine and search and rescue aircraft, that arrived in Australia in 1962 and was retired in 1977. Now, if you'd like to see that British Pathé newsreel that you heard at the beginning of the episode and see the film footage of those Neptunes arriving, as well as photographs of the team and of number 277 under restoration, they're all on the brand new, hear that? brand new Mac One Hangar blog site. You know, a lot of people understandably ask if they can see photos and videos of the topics that we discuss in these podcast episodes. Now, I did set up a discussion group on Facebook called the Mac One Hangar, but let's face it, not everyone is on Facebook, and that's also understandable. So, there is now a new Mac One Hangar with photos, videos, and a place to leave comments, which is available to anyone who's interested. Please check it out. There's a link to the hangar, which can be found at the QAM website, qam.com.au slash podcast. That's on the podcast page of the QAM website. And that's where you can go to find all of the episodes, if you prefer not to use a podcast app. And on that page you'll see a link 
to the Mac One hangar. Go there, check out the pictures and the videos. Alternatively, if you don't want to go through our website, go directly to the Mac One hangar, that's all one word, themacwanehanger.wordpress.com. There are a couple of short videos there and some photos, and we'd love to have your comments there as well. Now, in next week's episode, which is part two of this feature, you're going to hear from four QAM members who flew in Neptunes and indeed in 277, our Neptune, and they do have some stories to tell, let me assure you. One of them was a pilot, one a navigator, and two were air electronics officers. But for today, you're going to hear from the volunteers who are working each week on the restoration of our Neptune. Team leader Keith Richardson, Peter Harrington, and Ian Edwardson. This project is fascinating. So here we go. So I'm sitting underneath the, bo- the open bomb bay doors of a Lockheed Neptune, number 277, at the Queensland Air Museum. And it's being restored at the moment by a team of volunteers. And I'm going to talk to a couple of them today. So firstly, I'm going to talk to the uh, project manager, the restoration project manager, Keith Richardson. G'day, Keith. G'day. Can you firstly tell me what's your background that led you to this point and how did you come to volunteer at the QAM? Well, I was always uh, mad about aeroplanes from being a kid. I was brought up on uh, the uh, Battle of Britain pilots and so on, so um, it was always regarded as heroes. When I was uh, 14 I joined the Air Cadets, um, did some flying with them, uh, got a glider pilot's licence with them. Uh, At 17 I had to leave them because I got an apprenticeship in electronics. I did that for five years and then I went to work for the Royal Aircraft Establishment at a place called Bedford. Uh, We were working on autopilots for automatic landings. This is way back in 1963, so it was pretty crude in those days. Um, It was a great job. If I hadn't got married, I'd probably have stayed there for the rest of my life, but um, the pay was dreadful. (laughs) So which led me to getting out of it and going work in electronics first. I worked for uh, Marconi on data transmission equipment, then um, when I came to Australia I worked for on uh, various NASA tracking stations before getting into the computer business. Just tell us which tracking stations you worked in. Uh, firstly Carnarvon in Western Australia which was working on the Apollo project. Yep. Uh, then I went to uh, Island Lagoon which was just outside Woomera uh, on deep space projects. Wow. And then finally um, Aurora Valley which is in the ACT just on the, the Earth orbiting satellites. None of these exist anymore. Uh, one time I think there were um, five tracking stations in Australia. Uh, now there's only one, Tibimbilla, which works on the deep space projects. It's the only one left. Okay. I ended up as a, a programmer for the last 15 years uh, until I retired. Um, and when I retired, I came here and started fiddling with old aeroplanes. <laughs> So, so what are you doing as a volunteer here then? What, what is your role? What sort of project are you working on on the Neptune? Fixing corrosion. <laughs> doing sheet metal work late, mainly. Um, um, we've got various projects on at the moment. Uh, the next one, we, big one we have, is to put a jet engine in one of the pods that we, on here. We are, there should be two jet engines on it, but we only have one, so we'll put it in uh, the port pod. 
So for our listeners, this is a twin prop uh, maritime surveillance aircraft. What were the jet engines for? Um, well, the, thing was, the Neptune was originally designed back in uh, 1945. Um, and it was designed as a uh, maritime bomber, I suppose you call it, uh, dropping mines and things like this. Um, but gradually it morphed into uh, an anti-submarine aircraft, which meant they piled on more and more equipment. Uh, they took the gun turrets off because, firstly, they're not needed. Secondly, the, they couldn't handle the weight of it. But then they put even more and more equipment in. And eventually, even though the two engines can give 3,700 horsepower, it wasn't enough to reliably get it off the ground, so they um, fixed on two little uh, turbojets on pods on the outside. It was a later modification. There was an earlier model Neptune than this that the RAAF had, which was called the P2V5. The P2V5s came without the jets. This is the P2V7, is that right? That's, that's right, yeah. Uh, later they added the jets to the P2V5s, and then this one, the P2V7, was an improved model which um, uh, superseded the P2V5, but it came originally with the jets. Uh, so you say you're planning to install a jet engine here, um, to, and do we have a jet engine? Yes, we have one. Wow. It's in, uh, it's in Hangar 2 at the moment, as Peter has been uh, restoring it. Okay. Do either of the uh, engines that are fitted, do they work at all? Um, they haven't run since 1977, as far as we're aware. The history of them is a little bit uncertain. Uh, they may be the original engines, uh, but there are stories that they're not. <laughs> so we've had several people come around saying that they were engine fitters in the Air Force and they could make them work, but none of them have ever come back to actually make it, to actually do it. And we have distinct doubts that they would run without a lot of work. What's the situation with corrosion on, on 277? Is it in, a, in, a good, in bad shape? Or? Um, there are areas that are not good. Um, well, the area I'm working on at the moment is one of the pods. There is a, a fairing on it which was badly corroded, so I've got to make a new one of those, which is not the easiest of things because it's curved and it's a strange shape. Um, when I did my apprenticeship in electronics, we actually had to do some metal bashing, but that's... About sixty odd years ago, to trying to get trying to get the old skills back again is uh, can be a bit of a problem. So, two seven seven here was was based at Townsville at Garbutt um, with number ten squadron. Yes, number ten squadron. Okay, and I know that it took part in quite a number of SAR search and rescue operations, uh, and I learned for the first time, and I don't know if our listeners know this, that. This aircraft and many others were placed on what was called SAR standby. I think it was whenever there was a royal visit or a royal tour, so that which was something I'd never heard of. So that there were there were aircraft on standby in case search and rescue was needed for a VIP like that. So that's that's just an interesting piece of history that I wasn't aware of. So according to our uh, provenance, uh, this aircraft flew for the last time in 1975 and then it went into the possession of Sid Beck. Sid uh, bought it from the Air Force and he transported it to his chook farm in Townsville where he displayed it to the public. Um, for, uh, we don't, not sure how long he did it for, but it was a number of years. I believe eventually the council um, had problems with this, I think with parking and so on. Uh, and Sid also owned a farm up at Mariba, uh, inland from Cairns. Uh, the other thing was that he wanted to take it up to Mariba, but 
the road wasn't suitable to carry it at the time. Right. Uh, I believe there was a bridge that had to be built. Uh, when that was done, he uh, took the aircraft up to Mariba, where it was put into a very large hangar, which I, th I believe was like a, a USAF wartime hangar. Um, it was displayed there, not in the condition that you see it now. Um, the wings outboard of the engines were not on, the jet pods weren't on because they belonged to the wing out there, and the fin wasn't on. Uh, that is the, that's the way we found it. Uh, Sid died, and his sons weren't interested in carrying on the museum, so they put the Neptune up for sale, and the museum bought it. Uh, but we had to dismantle it in order to bring it down uh, to uh, Caloundra. Um, the, we could have brought the fuselage down in one piece, but the problem was that would need a police escort, and the cost of the police escort would have been around about $20,000, um, which we didn't really have. So we went up there, a group of 13 people, we were up there for eight days and we split the fuselage into four sections. We took the engines off, uh, retracted the undercarriage, and it was brought down on a, a sort of fleet of trucks. Uh, it ended up here as a big pile of parts. Uh, for whatever reason, um, the president at the time asked me to take on the, the idea of putting it together, which was a bit startling since I'd only been with the museum about a month. Um, and I was sort of a bit nonplussed as to where, where to start. Fortunately, uh, Peter Harrington came along and volunteered to, to, to help, and he was the first uh, of the team to, to arrive. Um, Ian Edwardson came along to join and we had another guy who um, was a work for the doll person who helped us for a, a few months before moving on to somewhere else. And since then we've just gradually reassembled the aircraft. We started off by jacking up the centre section which we're sitting under at the moment on a pile of timber. Um, we then attached the nose section or I should say the other guys did, because I was on holiday when that happened. Um, this involved the use of a large crane, um, and so for a lot, quite a long time the aircraft was now standing on its three legs, but aft of the bomb doors it wasn't there, that was lying somewhere else. We assembled two rear sections on the ground, by, just by using ratchet straps and uh, a winch. Um, but then we had to lift that section, those two sections together, and bolt them onto the rest of the aircraft. Now that's, that's not the easiest of things, because not only do you have to get it right up and down, left and right, but also twisting. Um, and, uh, the only things that really hold the sections together are four, four bolts, which are startlingly small, and then lots and lots of little bolts that go right around the fuselage. Um, so what we had to do was get it on the crane, get in a position, get those first bolts in to, to uh, um, get the thing lined up and together. And then we put in the bolts around the top of the fuselage. We could then let the crane off because the, it was then uh, stable enough to, to stay in position. And then put the rest of the hundreds of, well, they're really screws rather than bolts around the rest of it. Um, this was would have been um, three years ago, I think, that we got to that stage. And when did the wings go back on? That was the Christmas before last. Um, that was a, a, a major team effort. The people from all over the museum came. 
we had a, a big crane, we had um, people sitting on top of the wings. There are about, um, I think, about a dozen bolts that hold the wings on. And this is a wingspan, I, Peter's just told me, that's greater than the Orion wingspan, the four-engine Orion. It's very startling when you look at how little holds this thing together. <laughs> so at the time of recording, if somebody comes into the QAM, they're going to see an essentially whole fuselage frame. They're going to get a good impression of what it looked like when it was in service. Are you going to fit it out as with number 10 squadron markings and roundels and colours? Is that the way it's going to be? How is it going to be presented when it's finished? Um, we are having um, the vinyl um, markers made. Uh, David Charles is doing that. There are, I think, over a hundred of them that uh, go on there. So some things will be painted on. The roundels, for instance, need to be painted on. At yep. the moment, we don't have any painters available, but uh, eventually that'll be done. Um, and yes, it'll look basically the way, the way it did. The interior is almost complete, which is, it is probably, wow. probably the second most complete Neptune in Australia. So on an open cockpit day, eventually, people will have the opportunity to see inside. Is that the plan? That's the plan. Uh, we have done that in the past. Yeah. We haven't done it for the last couple of years because of COVID regulations and so on. Um, you have to be fairly uh, athletic to go through the, of the, uh, the aircraft. It was designed for 20-year-old uh, men to climb in and out, and we're 80-year-old men. <laughs> Well, look, thanks very much, Keith. That's been fantastic. Uh, I will also speak to some of the other team members and we'll get their perspective on what they're doing. But all the very best to you and the team. This is a fantastic project. It's very exciting to see it. You know, you drive along Pathfinder Drive and you see this massive fin sticking up above the, the fence line with 7-7 on it. It's just incredible how, how high and, and how big that is. And then you come inside here and you're able to see the Neptune um, coming together so that it will be restored to its former glory. Thank you very much for talking to us. Okay, thanks. Now I'm going to interrupt the restoration team members here to draw your attention to the fact that at the time of recording, early in 2022, we are looking at 60 years since the Neptunes arrived in Australia. That was 1962. And we're currently exploring the possibility of marking the occasion with a small event at the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra sometime later in the year. Keep an eye on the upcoming events information on the QAM website for details. And let us know by all means. Leave a comment in the Mac One hangar if you'd be interested in attending such an event, just so that we can begin to gauge interest. The 60th anniversary of the Neptune in Australia, coming soon, hopefully. Now, back to continue the story from the restoration team. So, Peter Harrington, thank you for talking to me. You're, you're a, a QAM volunteer and have been for quite a number of years now. How did you come to be here and how did you come to be working on the Neptune? In the late 90s, I worked for an organisation that uh, conducted uh, engine modifications to uh, motor cars, mainly of the General Motors Holden variety, and this was done in accordance with the, the government's code of practice. Fast forward to about 2006, I found myself talking to a gentleman who was a member of QAM, and I related to him 
in the course of conversation how I'd just finished putting a V6 Commodore engine in my neighbour's four-cylinder Toyota Hilux rear-wheel drive ute. Uh, using the knowledge that I'd picked up in, in, in my previous experience. He said, how would you like to work on a Rolls-Royce Merlin? I'd heard of these things and thought this might be a good thing to do. What's the story? And he said, well, the Queensland Air Museum has got one in pieces and management wants us to assemble it. How would you like to be part of the crew to do that? Well, of course, I agreed on the spot. Uh, to be able to say I've worked on a Rolls-Royce Merlin would be quite something. So I found myself working with um, engines of various types. We finished the Merlin, we put it together, and it's now sitting beneath the um, Mustang in Hangar 2. We then um, started on radial engines, and this went on till about 2015, when the museum management announced the intention to purchase a Neptune. And I thought at the time, this is for me. So um, in early 2016, um, along with about 13 other people, um, I went to Mareeba and uh, participated in dismantling the aeroplane with a view to getting it back here to Caloundra. Uh, that was in 2016 and I've been working on the Neptune ever since. Um, our intention is to have it completed to look like um, a Neptune in service. We're not trying to make a new aeroplane, so it, w it looks like it's been in service and has got the usual fair wear and tear that you'd see in a working aeroplane. Now we're sitting beneath the Bombay with the Bombay doors open and I, I'm able to look up and see all the fitments, all the, you know, the, the, the tubing and cabling and all the gear that's in here. So you guys have done this? We have. When we acquired the aeroplane, um, it, it had been neglected for probably since uh, Sid Beck purchased it. Nothing had been done. So the paint was falling off and it looked pretty terrible. We decided uh, at, a, at a point that the Bombay is something that the public can see and it should be made to look the way it should look. Yeah. When we took it over, everything in the Bombay had been painted. Everything. And we suspect this was because these aeroplanes spent most of their life flying over the sea and to protect the internals from corrosion paint was applied everywhere but that's not how it looked when it came from the factory. It took us about three months um, and we have the Bombay now looking as it did when it came from the factory um, and we, we're rather proud of it. Uh, to get it apart was a project but to put it together again required something like 110 photographs as we did not have a plan. Um, so using the photographs we put it back the way it was and uh, the way we think it looked when it came from the factory. So what are you working on today Peter? Currently I'm working on um, preparing the jet pod for the installation of the one jet engine that we have. Inside the jet pod was, a, was something of a project because um, although the aeroplane is in pretty good shape there are areas of considerable corrosion and because we intend to open the jet pod and let the public see what it looked like with its engine fitted, it's necessary then to deal with this corrosion, repair it, refurbish it and make it presentable and have the appearance as it would have been as a working aeroplane. But the inside of the aeroplane is now looking quite respectable. 
it was missing a number of components, for example, instruments, um, and a, f a lot of switches were damaged that, that deteriorated badly because of age. We have replaced the switches, which meant we've remanufactured them. Mm. Uh, various instruments have been acquired, so it now has all of the instruments it should have had in the cockpit and through the fuselage. It has probably 80% of its black boxes. There are a number of items that we can't get, probably because of the uh, lapse of time, there's none left in the world. Um, in the fullness of time, we will make facsimiles of these things so that in, in, in the fullness of time, the internals of the aeroplane will be complete. The Bundaberg TAFE metal workers constructed for us a facsimile Mark 44 homing torpedo, which once it's painted and made look nice, we intend to mount in the bomb bay. Uh, we've had manufactured a facsimile SSQ-24 Sonoboy, which is mounted inside the aeroplane, and that explains to those who look inside what all the clips are for and what a Sonoboy looks like. So for our listeners, what was the purpose of a Sonoboy? A Sonoboy was a tubular uh, device, probably a metre and a half long, a diameter of probably 80, cent 80 millimetres, and these things were launched into the sea uh, to detect and identify submarines. So the Sonoboy consisted of, at one end, a microphone on a cable, and at the other end, a VHF radio. The microphone was tuned for low-frequency noise made by submarines, or, or surface vessels for that matter, and the VHF radio transmitted back to the aeroplane what the Sonoboy heard. Uh, these aeroplanes would carry a considerable number of these when on an anti-submarine mission. And when the question was posed to our ex-Air Force colleagues, where would we get a Sonoboy? They both laughed and said there's mountains of them in the sea in the of Ocean. Sydney and Townsville <laughs> where they had been doing uh, submarine exercises. Congratulations, Peter, to you and the team. You're doing a fantastic job here. It just looks so wonderful. Uh, and you don't, I mean, you wouldn't be a little bit proud of what you're doing by the sound of it. Well, we are, and we've, we're very keen to have people look inside because inside the aeroplane is... Uh, people have seen inside commercial aeroplanes and you see rows of seats. Inside military aeroplanes is totally different. Mm. So to have people look inside, um, we have things in there that light up. For example, the clock in the radio compartment shows the correct time. Um, and it's a defence secret, I'm not allowed to tell you how that came about. There are things in the cockpit that work. Um, the pilot's head-up display um, and a couple of the... Uh, equipments in the tactical compartment now work and to have people look at these things it gives them an idea of what the operators saw what the internals of the aeroplane looked like um, and the confined space in which the crew worked when they were at work. If somebody was to come down to the QAM on a Tuesday or Wednesday and they're very interested in the Neptune and they come over to have a look and they read the notice board, the, the information board and so on, but they see one of you guys here in your high-vis shirts working uh, on the aircraft, is it okay with you if they ask you some questions about what you're doing? We're more than happy to tell people what we know. Um, those of us who did not fly in these aeroplanes now know quite a lot because we've been told what went on by the two team members who did fly in this aeroplane. So we're more than happy to not only tell people about what the aeroplane's capabilities were, but to uh, invite them to look inside and see for themselves what wow. the insides of the aeroplane look like. 
So there you go. Don't be afraid of a yellow or orange high-vis shirt. If you see somebody working around an aircraft and you have some questions, they're more than likely to be very happy to show you around and tell you what's going on. Peter, thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Ian Edwardson, thank you for talking to me too. My pleasure. What's your personal experience with uh, Neptunes? Well, uh, <clears throat> my very early experience was uh, I was in the Army and I was posted to Townsville, so I saw a lot of Neptunes flying overhead up there, and I always thought it was a, a magnificent aeroplane. And when I got the opportunity to work on this one, uh, I grabbed it with both hands. Tell us what you're working on on this Neptune. Well, actually, uh, I'm the unskilled labour uh, around here, so I get to do a, a lot of stuff. And people uh, that I know have said, well, you know, what's your background? What's your, do you have any aircraft experience, aviation experience? And my answer very often is, if you can undo a bolt or nut, you can, you can work on the Neptune. It'd be good to be able to re- reconnect it afterwards, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, but as long as you can undo it and do it up, um, you can be of, of assistance. Um, there, you've got to have the experts around the place or the people who know their way around a lot more but uh, but uh, you can certainly be of assistance if you can do, do something as simple as that and the other thing I get involved with is just cleaning down stuff um, for instance we were working on the uh, the jet pods at the moment and, um, and they were in a pretty shocking condition because they were all lying on the ground for many years uh, full of mud and, and uh, rubbish so uh, I had the the enviable job of uh, cleaning them off and and uh, with Peter painting them and uh, polishing up the polishing up the stainless steel. So it's that sort of job. And you had uh, some time on the aircraft interior as well. Yeah, the, the first job I I did when I came here was because uh, I I have a hobby with woodwork and the um, uh, it was pretty difficult to get around because the floor was all rotten and uh, dis- had disappeared. So. Uh, I replaced the floor, and uh, there's a lot of the uh, the floor has to be uh, is done in panels. It's not a straight through run, so there's a lot of panels and there's a lot of lot of uh, odd corners that have to be filled or um, uh, covered. So we did a fair bit of work on that. Yeah. Well, I think the, the big story here is the uh, the uh, ingenuity of the the fellows like Peter and uh, and Keith. Um, for example, when they were putting two sections, the tail sections together, they were sitting on the ground on um, on cradles. And to get them together, uh, they used a couple of cargo straps between the cradles, a $20 Aldi hand winch to pull it together, and a truck jack on the side to turn it so they could marry up 138 holes uh, with 138 holes and the bolts put in all before the uh, the sealant went off. So it was a it was a pretty interesting job. And then other things that they did were um, when they lifted the aircraft, that was done with a couple of truck jacks and uh, a pyramid of uh, railway sleepers. So the the ingenuity that's gone into putting this uh, this together is really something. And this is what goes on all throughout the museum. You sound like you enjoy what you do here. Well, it keeps me off the streets. <laughs> So that's part one of our feature on the restoration of our Lockheed Neptune. Part two will be next week. And look, this is fascinating. You you will enjoy this episode, I can assure you. You'll be hearing from some aircrew who flew in the Neptunes and flew this particular one as well. They all have perspectives to bring, which are 
sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but always very interesting. So that will be part two of our Lockheed Neptune feature. That will be next week. Thank you for listening. Come in and visit us at the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. Come and see us soon. Bye for now.